account of what it is that you think is worthy of praise, of admiration even. What you imitate, though, may not be all that flattering. It may actually be foolish. At our Father's Day, I don't know if you remember, but we looked at this little part of God's Word at Father's Day and talked about imitation. And I told you a little story about my son, Micah, because imitation can be flattering, but then it can start to make you realise that you don't do things quite right. And I was told the story about when our rabbit died. So Micah and Tilly had this little rabbit and it had died. And I'd gone up and checked on the rabbit in the morning and yep, it had died. And so what I said when I went up and checked on it and I opened up the door was, I yelled back to Vic who was inside in the kitchen. I said, yep, he's done. And so at that point I thought, here's an opportunity though. There's a dead rabbit out here. There's a special pet. Here's an opportunity to talk to my son about death, to talk to my son about life. And so I go in there and I explain to him, we're going to go and see something now and I want you to be ready, I want you to be prepared. And we go up and he goes and he opens the door and he crouches down and he turns back and goes, yep, he's done. And I think to myself, maybe not the best model for imitation, right? Imitation, it's an important thing. And it's important because most of us as we grow up, I don't know if you realise this, but we start doing it from as young as six months old. We are being formed based upon the images that we see. And they say that's because you can imagine, you can have an imagination about the person you want to be, about the things you want to do, even the things you want to think, but until you have an image to see that and to imitate, it becomes very difficult for you to live into that space. And so I don't think this is a bad way for us to wrap up our series, to pull together everything that we've looked at today, to pull together what we started with, where Paul called them the, the church of Christ in Corinth, that wonderful neon sign that reminded them that they have been saved, that they have been sanctified, that they are saints by, by grace. And then to say, now be of one mind, work together, figure this thing out, to keep going as this church, to be the fools of the cross that he calls them in the rest of chapter 1 to be the fools of the church that he calls them, to be the fools of this foolish message that goes out, to be the truly spiritual ones that are indwelt by the Holy Spirit that are longing to be transformed more and more by him and to follow the right sort of leaders because all of this is about formation, isn't it? Fools who follow Christ Jesus and him crucified, imaging themselves off that image, Christ himself. Because imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And what Paul is saying, he's going to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And sadly, I reckon we have to admit that if we were to look at the church and think about what it is that the church tends to flatter, is it Christ? Is it really? Or can it often be the various cultural mores around us, similar to the people in Corinth, that Corinth is in the church more than the church is in Corinth? Yeah, we've been wrestling with that. And I think we, all, we can pull it all together. I'm going to try and pull it all together with this passage today. Because imitation is so much about our formation. How we are formed in following in the ways of Jesus. And most of our second half of this year has been about that. And guess what? I'm going to tell you, beginning of next year, we're going to be doing a very similar thing. Because this is so much what the Christian life is. Particularly for a people who are constantly living in a culture that's trying to drag us onto the wrong side of the road to drive on that wrong side of the road drag us into living as people who value autonomy, authority, our own sense of arrogance, dragging us into that individualised culture that we live in, that's expressed in consumerism and anti-other authoritarianism. Pride. 
We have to be so careful with pride, and that's what Paul reminds them of again today. You see, last week we talked about leaders in particular, and he's still talking about leaders and apostles here, but he's, he's starting to direct it to all of them. Remember last week I said this is applied to leaders and how we view leaders, but can also be applied to all of us. I was able to do that because of verse 6. Have a look at verse 6. Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. Today, as we talk about formation, I think it's going to be a bit cutting at times. And so we need to hear verse 14 as well. This is the tone I'm going to try and take that Paul was writing in. He says, I'm, not, I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. He's not coming trying to be shame-filled and negative to them. He's coming and he'll explain himself like a father, coming to his child saying, please, let me show you how you're behaving and let me, let me show you the way that you, you, you could be and should be, the, the, the better over here, because this is what you look like. That's how you've been formed and, and it'd be better if you're formed like this. And so let's have a look. We're going to start by looking at how we're formed by Scripture or the content of what we're formed by. We are formed by the cross, or we should be formed by the cross, what we believe to be praiseworthy and honourable, and then formed by an example, an image. So let's start having a look again at verse 6. Verse 6 is where we get this idea of being formed by Scripture. It, it seems most clearly anyway. Did you see the part there? It says, do not go beyond what is written. He wants them to learn to not go beyond what is written. Now, this phrase has various ideas around it. People struggle to capture it because it's quite a complex little cookie. But right throughout 1 Corinthians 1 to 4, what have we seen? We've seen Paul quote Scripture time and time again, haven't we? He says, what is written, or he says, it is written, or as it was written. Right throughout, we've seen the Scriptures as being the governing, guiding thing. At the end of the day, that's God's wisdom, His Word. And then there was the Word, Christ Jesus, who came to reveal God's wisdom. And so where does Paul's thinking come from? Where does Paul's speaking come from? Where does Paul's being come from? His reality and his morality, it is built off the Scriptures. It is formed in the world of the Scriptures. And now these guys wouldn't have had what we have. They would have the Old Testament and slowly these letters that are being compiled. But that is where we need to turn. There is a warning here. As he says, he doesn't write it to shame them, but to warn them. A warning in the Corinthian context against what's called syncretism, which is where you just take a little bit of whatever it is that feels nice, you shake it up in the cocktail shaker, you pour that drink and you enjoy it because it fits nicely and it perfectly matches your palate. He's saying, Corinth, this pluralistic and materialistic culture that seeks power and prestige and prosperity, you've got to be careful because that's going to bleed into the way that you start to think, well, I can live like this. And so this is saying to us, who live in a pluralistic, materialistic, anybody disagreeing with me yet? Culture, seeking power and prestige and prosperity. We've got to hear this. And I've said this right throughout the series, right? I'm bringing it together. But we want to be formed by Christ, not by Corinth. And Christ, when Christ shapes us, when Scripture forms us, it seeks to form us, it will make us into humble servants, into givers. What do you think Corinth does? Human culture, worldly wisdom, tends to form us into proud masters, really, doesn't it? Takers. And so you can see why this is a little dangerous for the people of Corinth and for us. 
Do not go beyond it, he says. Now, if you, want, if you want to not go beyond something, you think about it with a kid. If you tell a kid, just don't go over there, what are they going to do? That's not, if you say to them, you can eat, oh, have, have as many as you think I would be okay with when it comes to candy canes. Mate, my kids love those candy cane things at this time of the year. They're going to, you need to know the limits, the understandings of it all, don't you? If we say that we are the people of Christ, we need to understand what it means to be the people of Christ. We've got to know it. And I'm going to apply some stuff now that particular generations, you might think that you'd be able to uh, slither out from under this. And you might, you might be in some respects because you may not have the same issues that younger generations have. So for our older generations, we're talking upper boomers, builders. Let's say if you are 70 plus, some of this may not feel like it applies, but please listen and understand that this is the world and the context that we have the future generations growing up in. Because we are a pretty illiterate group of people when it comes to the scriptures, both outside the church, but also inside the church. We have the most access that you could ever imagine to the scriptures. We can have it everywhere in our own Bibles of different colors, sizes, shapes, all online that you can scroll through in our ears through audio stuff. And yet we are one of the most, if not the most ignorant for some, some time. And so starting next year, I want to help us to form that better. We want to reset, return, rebuild, restore, renew. And so we will do this. And I know it can be hard, but we have to ask ourselves, what is actually forming us when it comes to content? There is a warning in this passage, and it's not here to shame. This is a a loving thing. You need to know which side of the road to drive on. And if you're driving a manual or an auto, otherwise you're going to be pumping the brakes and running into things. One of my favorite illustrations, I'll, I'll tell you one of my favorite illustrations if we're wrapping things up. There was this couple that had just, well, a new pastor had joined the church and they really wanted to get to know their pastor. Let's just say the pastor's name is Brett and he has a, a really lovely, beautiful wife named Victoria, just by chance. And they've just joined the church and so this, this couple wanted to invite them around and encourage them and have them around for a meal and so they thought, oh, we've got to get it all set, we've got to get ourselves together. Pastor Brett, would you like to come around for dinner? Oh, of course, that'd be lovely. Like, you let us know when you're cooking lamb and we'll be there. And so they did, they planned to cook lamb and they set it all up, they made the table beautiful and they cooked the lamb and it was looking mint, they had the mint jelly too, it was, it was, it was ready. They'd set the table and what they really wanted to make sure was we don't want them just eating with the ordinary cutlery. You know the ordinary cutlery in the drawer that's all mismatched and all the rest? No, we'll get out our fine silver cutlery that's been in the family for generations and we'll set it all out. And for dessert, for pavlova, just to finish it all off, it'll be fantastic. Pastor Brett and Victoria come round, Vic as she likes to be called, come round and they have a, this beautiful meal. There's laughs, there's discussion around good Christian things and they think we've done well. Oh, and just to make sure that the, the pastor knew that they were good Christians, they'd place their Bible right there, just, just on the, right there, just on the lounge in a position that, okay, it looks like, actually, hang on, let me just, yeah, I've been reading it this morning. And so, they have the meal. It's a hoot. The lamb was cooked perfectly. Medium rare, if you're wondering. That's my favourite. And then, after the meal, they all go home. But they're packing up, and you know what happens? They're packing up, and they realise, as they're cleaning, one of the silver spoons is missing. And they think to themselves, surely not. Surely Victoria didn't take it. 
maybe it slipped into her purse. And I mean, that thing's been in the family for generations. It's probably worth a house uh, in, in Menai somewhere. We could, it's, what are we going to do? Anyway, they couldn't make church that Sunday, so they couldn't ask them. So they didn't go along that week. But the following week they went and they went to ask and they thought, no, we, we just can't ask them whether this is what's happened. We'll search again. They searched again. Again, they couldn't make church for the next couple of weeks. So a month and a bit's passed by now. And still they, they couldn't find this spoon. Finally, two months later, they get the opportunity. Pastor Brad is just saying goodbye to the congregants and they walk up and they say, oh, Pastor Brett, this is, this is awkward. And we're not accusing you of anything, maybe Vic. No, we're not accusing any of you of anything here. But when you came for dinner, wasn't that a wonderful night? It was great, wasn't it? But well, what happened was we were cleaning up and we realized, and Pastor Brett says, the spoon, your silver spoon. Oh, Praise God, you've got it? No. I left it in your Bible. Yeah? Perfectly positioned and primed for a spoon. And we giggle. And yet for many of us, if we're honest, a silver spoon worth half a house in Menai could sit in our Bible and we wouldn't be closer to having half a house after a few weeks. And I'm not trying to shame you I'm trying to warn you. Start simple, please. If you're somebody that struggles with reading the Scriptures, let us know. We want to be able to help you. I can nearly guarantee, though, that if you are a, a mid-boomer to anyone younger, all throughout those generations, you spend more time in social media formation than scriptural formation. Guaranteed. Let me ask you, like, let me just ask, if, I was to, if you were to try and pick the worldwide average for 2021 of the number of minutes spent on social media, how many would you think it is per day? And somebody can just shout out a number. Give it a go. 74. 74. Closer. We're getting warmer. Getting colder, but half that, double yours, approx. 144 minutes, two hours and 24 minutes a day just on social media. And in Australia, if you think, well, that's the world. We Aussies don't do that. Well, in Australia, between the age of 16 and 64, social media, we spend 106 minutes. And then on streaming services, three hours and 30 minutes. That's a lot, right? In fact, the World Health Organization realized this was happening a lot, and they said, if you have an average lifespan, they reckon, of 72 years, that's the sort of global way that they're looking at it, and if you start using social media at the age of 10, in a lifetime, an average person will spend 3.5 million minutes on social media alone. That means they've spent six years and eight months of their time on social media. Streaming and television, eight years and four months. That's what you put those two together, what do you get? It's 16 years. Almost 16 years of just sitting in front of that stuff, either here or there. And it forms us, just to balance it out, sleeping we do 26 years and five months, and I'm not suggesting you drop that. I'm, I'm talking about content, what's coming in. Because it's not necessarily all negative, but we must realise we are being formed. And so what content is forming you most? I'm saying this to warn you, not to shame you, for you just to think, yeah, how am I being formed? Because what, what's his purpose? What's he, what's he hoping might happen? The rest of verse 6 if you, if you do not go beyond what is written, then you will not be puffed up like that balloon full of hot air that will pop because it has no real substance. 
in being a follower of one of us over against the other, what he's been talking about for this whole beginning of the letter. That's the results. That's what he hopes. Not puffed up. And then he goes on in verse 7 to say, For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Again, that idea, I I use that illustration of Tilly boasting about her Fitbit, a gift that she's been given. This is like some... See, pride is illogical when we are formed by truth. Not our truth, but the truth, isn't it? And in spiritual terms, even more. It's like boasting because you have those lovely blue-green eyes that you've got. You were just given them. Thanks, Mum. Thanks, Dad. But it's illogical to boast at that point, isn't it? And so we have to think, what is actually forming us and why is it that we think we can then become so proud in and of ourselves? And to help the Corinthians understand, he now contrasts a couple of examples. He, well, basically he says, I want you to look at your life and then I want you to look at my life and ask yourself, who are you imitating, properly reflecting? Who, who are you being formed by? What is honourable in your life? And to begin with, he tries to push them towards saying you should be formed by the cross because ultimately that is what should be forming us. Christ and him crucified, the cruciformed life. And now he uses sarcasm. This next bit is dripping with sarcasm. Like I like to cover my chicken with gravy. It is just oozing all over this. And again, not to shame them, but to warn them. This doesn't want to stay on the page. There we go. Look at yourselves, he says. Verse 8, have a look. What does he say? Already, think about the sarcasm, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign. And that without us, how I wish that you really had begun to reign so that you also might reign, that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to humans. He starts there with that verse 8, with this reigning idea, pointing out what's called an over-realized eschatology, this idea that the end time where we will reign with Christ Jesus has been realized now in completion. And of course, he's like, oh man, of course, I wish that was the case, but it's not. Yes, Christ Jesus reigns, but what it's going to look like in the in-between until that day when he returns and judges all and everybody sees it, It's going to look a little different. In fact, it's going to look like what we're going through. And he uses this idea of the triumphal entry language. And let me just help you understand what that is. In Corinth, there would have been these archways, these big archways that were called the triumphal entries, where when when a Roman army or an army like that from Corinth went out and did battle and they conquered a nation, they would come back on this huge parade, massive. There would be music and lots of stuff thrown up into the sky, just a huge spectacle, just to celebrate the fact that they'd won. And at the front of the procession would be the generals and the captains, probably in gold chariots pulled by many, many horses. And everybody would cheer as they would come through. And they would come through super proud. And then after that, there would be some of the most honoured of the soldiers who would come through as well. And everybody would be cheering. And then next came the next lot of the soldiers. And then after that would be the spoils of war, all the gold and all of the... The, I was going to say elephants, but all the animals that they're bringing in, from, I don't know where they were conquering, but all the animals that they'd be bringing in and all the food and the spices and all this incredible stuff, and it'd be celebration. And then, at the very back, the conquered captives 
the ones soon to be condemned, usually who had been stripped of all their dignity, all of their clothing, naked, sometimes chained together, sometimes being dragged through, covered in mud and filth from the blood from the battle. Slaves now. Maybe these people were about to, maybe in a few days, be put before a huge Colosseum-like space where they would battle it out as gladiators, but expected to lose either with the other beasts of gladiators. And don't picture Russell Crowe, Maximus gladiator. No, this person's meant to die. Either by the hand of that sort of a beast or literally other beasts, like bears, that would come and tear them apart so that the crowd could watch and cheer. These are weak, pathetic individuals that are meant to be slain. That is how Paul calls himself. Like those condemned to die in the arena. At the back of the procession. And listen to how he then goes on. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are so strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless. We work hard with our hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I went cherry picking uh, for a season once. And I, have you ever been cherry picking? Anyone? Little hand up in the air. In the middle of summer, it's dusty. Yeah, it's dirty. You go out there and you're sweating. You go out really early in the morning and you sweat throughout the, the middle of the day and you pick as many cherries as you possibly can and you come home filthy. The word used for scum there is what the scrapings of my skin would have been at the end of a cherry-picking day. That's filth, isn't it? That's disgusting. And the word used for garbage, in, in the Greco-Roman world, they walked around in sandals, right? Through the dusty streets and all over the place. And I've mentioned before, I really, I really have a dislike for dirty floors. And if I wear bare feet on a dirty floor, my feet get really, ugh, like, you know, then stuff gets stuck on them and just scrape that off. That's what the garbage is. And what does Paul say? Right there, we have become the scrapings of the earth, the garbage of the world. Scum, the scrapings, garbage, the sweepings, those condemned, thrown to the beasts, human or animal, those conquered, trailing at the back of the line, naked and shamed. That is what it means to be a Christian if you follow in the way of Jesus. Because does that sound familiar? When we hear of somebody being made the scum of the earth, Garbage, condemned and conquered. Well, it makes me think of Christ crucified. Does it make you think of him? See, when we are formed by Christ, we will be fools for Christ. We have to anticipate it. It is terrible PR, <laughs> isn't it? If it wasn't the power of God. It is horrible PR if it wasn't also the wisdom of God. And we've seen that right throughout this series, right? It is terrible PR if it wasn't the best way for people to live their lives. And we, the scriptures convince me of that. The content convinces me of that. The power of the cross convinces me of that because that's where true freedom lies. That's where joy is available. But it will mean, at times, we will be the scum. We will be garbage. We will be condemned and conquered. Why would Paul be willing to do this? I mean, I start to think even... And I've been going through this series with you. What sort of a leader was that? To call others to that as well. The answer is a Christ-like one. Formed by Christ. And Him crucified. 
That's the path to honour, isn't it? The path to honour is on a road, a dusty road towards a cursed Roman cross where you become scum and garbage in the eyes of the world. And so let me pull everything together now. If we're going to be formed by the right content, if we're going to live by and formed by what is most praiseworthy, then we do need an image to follow, don't we? That some, someone imaging it that we can imitate. And we've got that in Christ. But then Paul says, verse 14, I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Unpack that another time. Therefore, he says, I urge you to imitate me. Here it is. Imitate me. I've just told you what my life is like. Now do it because it's just like Christ Jesus's. And so then he says, verse 17, for this reason I've sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He reminds you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach, his content everywhere in every church. Then he tells them he's coming and he asks them how he wants them to come. But I want to ask us as we finish this series, who are you flattering? If imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, and Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, who or what are you imaging? What image forms you? Because let's just look at those two lists again. Can we get them back up on the screen? Can you see those okay? If you have a look at those two lists, you can see a a big contrast between the Apostle Paul and Corinth. Which one describes Jesus best? (laughs) Well, the Apostle Paul, doesn't it? And it makes sense that it describes Jesus. And let me remind you again, I'm not doing this to shame you, but to warn you. Because pride and prosperity are two very difficult things to turn from. The two often come together as well. Often prosperity leads to pride. And so let's have a look at that list again. Which side are you on? Like if your image was to be portrayed, and genuinely, the whole picture... I'm not trying to say you have to get rid of everything you've got. We'll come to that. But where would you say? I'll put my hand up. I know where it is that I most likely look. I'm with the Corinthians. You? I'd like to say that I'm with Christ and the apostles. But at times, that's, that's, that's tough. What will Christmas look like for us? Because most of us really do relate to the Corinthians full and rich and well off. And the Bible says, well, Jesus says, how difficult it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. In the fertile soils of prosperity, pride can germinate and pride can grow. And a self-made, self-praising, entitled crop can often be the harvest. That's us. The people can result that way. And so I want us to hear this and to be warned. Now, we don't go around boasting. It's not like we're going around just boasting about because that's actually dishonorable in our culture, isn't it? That's why the tall poppy syndrome exists. But there are different expressions. Even those of us who are insecure or anger is one of those things. Selfishness and slander. But probably one of the biggest crops that grows is entitlement. An over-realized and, well, an over-realization and a declaration of our deserved rights. Entitlement. It's probably our over-realized eschatology from a humanistic perspective, right? That we are owed and we swim in a culture of entitlement This is the Corinthian air we breathe and we start to think we are owed for just because we are. You owe me. Just just be cut off in traffic, right? If I get cut off in traffic, do they it's almost like I'm saying, do they know who I am? I just a wave would be nice. And I try and convince myself that it has nothing to do with my pride, but it sits there. 
then you think, well, the church owes me. Just get a little disappointed with the church in a moment. By that I mean the body, the people, and think about and feel how you react. And then we go, God owes me. Just go through something you didn't expect or have to suffer a little. And we start to feel that way, don't we? I'm not being treated how I deserve. And, And I'm meant to, I'm owed here. And I said it earlier, and I just want to repeat it again. The suburbs are fertile soil, if ever there was. Remember the story and the vision of the suburbs? The suburbs were constructed to create a safe space for family, family flourishing. And it's why there's these huge things that Andrew talked about when it comes to people needing to keep up with their mortgages, to keep up with the Joneses, or even just to keep up with their lifestyle. A separate and settled existence where we can pursue our dreams, establish our status and enjoy all of that without any threats from outsiders or any, anything that could disrupt that. And so the suburbs have been booming. A comfortable, secure and settled life in an ordered domain with one's nearest and dearest, your family, your friends, and as I said, Fido, your pets. Free to pursue what will bring me happiness with minimal disruption as long as me and my family are taken care of, to consume and move on up in the social status ladder if need be. It's attractive, isn't it? It's aspirational. It is an image. And it is all around us. What's hard is not all of that's bad. I'm not trying to say suburbs are bad, burn it, no. But we must ask, what is forming us? What content? What do we see as praiseworthy? And where are we in the procession? Where do we want to be in the procession? Which side would you put yourself on on that list? Most of us relate to Corinth. And we, what we need is to find examples of people who are counter-Corinth to be able to follow, flattering the right thing. Because some of us relate to Paul too. Now, it's fewer, right? And I don't want to be, you know, I want to be careful here. Again, this isn't to shame, this is to warn. Come to church and get beat up by Brett because you live in the suburbs. I'm not saying that. And when it comes to shame, Jesus has taken your shame. Remember the neon sign that sits above all of this that Paul is saying for these people too. This isn't saying that prosperity, to be blessed, is evil. It's what you do with it, isn't it? Right throughout 1 Corinthians, we've seen a warning against pride, against selfishness, against what you imitate, what you truly flatter, and therefore what it is you truly praise. So how do we be counter that? We have to remember the gift that we have been given all things. We've received it. Why do you boast as though you did not receive it? And then remember the giver and become like the giver. Let's have models of this everywhere. Influences in the church that then start to look like Paul, that look like Christ, that then start to influence our culture. So our culture starts to look more like Christ. Christ, humble servant, as opposed to Corinth, proud master. How do we do it? Well, verse 20 tells us. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. I don't know if you've recognised it right throughout. Paul keeps coming back to how it is that there is this power in, in, in the gospel. The gospel, the power of God. Talk is cheap, he says. Puffed up pride is just that, a balloon of hot air that will pop. But what stands eternal? The gospel truth, that Christ Jesus was crucified to save people like you and me. And so learn the gospel, live the gospel. The gospel is the very power of God. What did it say? For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Formed by scripture, 
formed by the cross, formed by example, formed by the power of God at work in your life and in my life. Hey, let's be fools together. How's that sound? At the end of this series, let's, let's roll into Christmas being willing to be the people at the back of the procession because we know that's where Christ would have been. And let's give him the only one that deserves any praise, all praise and admiration with the way that we live, with the way that we speak, with the way that we church. I'm going to pray and the, the band's going to come up. I'm going to sing in a moment. But to pray, what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn to Philippians 2 because it seems pretty fitting to be reminded of these words after a passage like that, doesn't it? All right? You all right out there? Verse 14 has, has sat with me all week. I'm not saying this to shame, but to warn. So I wanted to go hard. <laughs> Let me use these words to pray for us, or remind us, really, of who it is that we imitate. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please give us the same mindset as Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The scum, the garbage, the conquered. But we know, Lord, what comes next, that God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's what we pray, Lord, that every tongue might acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we all said amen. Amen.